Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast with me, Jacob Grainshaw. Today, we talk to Clarissa Ward, Chief International Correspondent of CNN, who recently spent 36 hours with the Taliban, and she tells us what it's like reporting on life today under the Taliban rule. As a journalist, I think I've always been intrigued by the possibility of getting to places that other people don't seem to be able to get to and talking to people who other people aren't able to talk to. So the Taliban for me was sort of a world that has been shrouded in secrecy since 9-11, virtually inaccessible to outsiders. Um, I knew of course that journalists who had tried to gain access to the Taliban had often ended up kidnapped. So that there was Clarissa Ward, and back in February, CNN ran a piece which saw Clarissa head out to Afghanistan and report from the Taliban territory. This was made possible by working with renowned film and documentary maker Najibullah Karashi. Clarissa, dressed in the niqab for the piece, had the chance to speak to local clinics, midwives and doctors, as well as shadow governors and military commanders for the district. Though, as we do come to learn, that last one was an unexpected development. What follows today is a look at the considerations and safety measures going in, as well as discussing what it's like to conduct those interviews as a white Western female journalist. One of the first things Clarissa mentions is how she needed to get CNN management to give the green light for the story, and what assurances went into that equation. For myself and Selma, we thought the most important thing was having an ironclad invitation from the highest levels of the Taliban, because while the Taliban may be known to most of us for their brutality, for their um, viciousness, for their indiscriminate attacks, for kidnappings, they do still have a code um, based on Pashtun Wali, which is a sort of tribal conduct or code of ethics. And under this code of ethics, the granting of protection or the covenant of security is considered very uh, important to them. So if you do find yourself in a situation where you have an ironclad invitation and guarantee of security, you can be pretty damn sure that the people who are hosting you are going to do whatever they can to ensure that you are protected during your stay. Um, I think for our bosses, that guarantee was only worth so much. What was probably more of a catalyst in terms of building trust for them was the fact that peace talks between the U.S. and the Taliban were really gaining momentum and it would be politically expedient given that for the Taliban to make sure that we were protected. For them to kidnap us or change the rules of engagement halfway through the assignment could potentially have a huge negative knock-on effect on those negotiations. And given that the Taliban at this point really seem to feel like they're moments away from getting the keys to the kingdom, as it were, from a rational perspective, it just didn't seem to make sense. Uh, and, and, and I think that was something that they could see and understand clearly. But there was one other particular threat, which we see towards the end of the piece in particular, being the threat of a US or Afghan airstrike. Here, as Clarissa outlines, they ultimately had to make a judgement call when the risks were running too high. 
in recent months, as the talks have gained momentum, the U.S. has really dramatically upped the number of airstrikes on the Taliban. And that's uh, pretty normal in these types of situations. It's a it's a strategy to increase the U.S.'s leverage, to make sure that the Taliban doesn't leave the negotiating table, in, and it gives them a card to play at the negotiating table. What it meant for us was that there is an increased threat of strikes, and obviously given that we had a Taliban escort, we are potentially a more conspicuous target. And there's... Um, a scene towards the end of our report where the military commander for the district stages this show of force. Essentially, he wanted to show off to our cameras how many men he has, how brave they are, how uncowed they are. And so it was about 40 or 50 men gathered, waving white Taliban flags, carrying weapons, large guns, uh, rocket-propelled grenades, things of that nature. And that was a very frightening moment for us because those types of gatherings are a uh, no-brainer target for drones, um, for U.S. and Afghan uh, Air Force airstrikes. And we asked them after a few minutes to disperse um, because we did feel that it was unsafe. They said that they were not afraid. Um, that this is their jihad. This is the military commander who said this, that he's not concerned about um, being hit or any sacrifice. Um, obviously, we have a very different approach to that, and we take our security very seriously. And we actually shortly afterwards left the area because we felt that um, there had been significant exposure and we were not comfortable with that. Now, this is far from Clarissa's first time reporting from this part of the world. I wonder then what goes through your mind as you're jetting over and what role experience plays. Does it make it any easier to hold your nerve in those scenarios? I've been in a lot of dangerous situations. I've covered a lot of conflicts and I would say I'm actually a very, very cautious uh, reporter. I definitely do not consider myself to be um, particularly brave, quite the reverse. I'm often extremely scared in um, heavy combat situations. I have many colleagues who are far braver than I am. So for me to be ready to do this story meant that I was really pretty comfortable with the fact that we had spent months and months uh, preparing this, uh, trying to mitigate every threat, trying to plan for every possible iteration of what could go wrong. And so by the time it got to the stage where we were on our way in, I felt um, actually enormously excited because it was a story we had been working on for so long. And it was a world that we haven't seen, except for a few snatches or glimpses here and there for 17 years. And so it seemed to me to be of tantamount importance, especially now with the talks ratcheting up, especially now that it appears the Taliban is essentially beginning a process of, of rehabilitation or reintegration into the political fold to be showing viewers around the world who these people really are, what they really stand for, have they really changed, what do they look like today, how are they different from who they were in the late 90s when they were in control. These were the kinds of questions that we felt it was really essential to be asking and looking into, and, and, and I was very excited to be on the ground and finally have 
um, the access to be able to do that. And how about any other ethical considerations? What were some of the things going through Clarissa's mind beforehand when planning and writing this story? Well, I, a lot of people have asked me if we tipped off the U.S. military that we were going to be in this area with the Taliban um, in an effort to try to prevent airstrikes. And the answer to that is an emphatic no, because when you're entering into a kind of covenant of security, it has to be a two-way street. So from the Taliban side, they're guaranteeing your protection, um, from their own men on the ground, from other groups on the ground. And from my side, I'm guaranteeing that we're not going to be doing something like tipping off the U.S. military about where we're going and therefore tipping off the U.S. military about where senior commanders for that area might be. Because if our presence ends up getting one of them killed or droned, then ethically, we have failed in our duty as journalists. Um, so that was a consideration. You know, not everyone you cover, you're going to like. Not every story, the subject is going to be someone you're going to identify with, relate to. But as a journalist, you have to protect your source. You have a duty to protect the people who are protecting you. Um, and similarly, there was a consideration on the other side that, you know, if the Taliban had wanted to show us certain things or, or do certain things with us of a military nature, that we would not have been interested in, in doing that or showing that or participating in that in any way. The military element of this was not really our emphasis. We were more interested in the story of the civilians who are living in these areas and in the story of Taliban governance or attempts by them to show that they can govern. Uh, the military commander's arrival towards the end of our stay and the subsequent show of force um, was not planned and it was not something that we had asked for um, at all, although it was very interesting and, um, and we were glad that we had that opportunity. So what was the atmosphere like in the room for Clarissa? And as a reporter, how do you try and fuel a conversation that sometimes seems one way? With the governor, it was, you know, he looked me in the eye when I spoke to him, but he never showed a flicker of emotion, of friendliness, of, frankly, I can't say that he was rude, but it was almost as if I was invisible except he would answer my questions. He would look at me and answer my questions, but there was never a sense of really interacting with me, um, dynamically responding to something I'd said. There was never a sense, honestly, of being human. We had also been told by the Taliban's leadership not to talk about political issues. And obviously we still did our jobs as journalists and asked the tough questions, but we did understand full well that we weren't likely to get meaty or substantive answers from them regarding political topics. I think one thing that probably made it a little bit easier in terms of the interaction is the fact that I don't speak Dari or Pashto, which meant that you're going through a translator. And so there's already a degree of sort of detachment a little bit. It's not a direct communication in the same way. I would say it became more tense and uncomfortable with the military commander who arrived at the end of our interview with the governor, complained about the fact that we were planning to do a shot of us walking on the street with the governor, complained about the fact that we didn't have a man with us, started grilling the governor about what he had discussed in the interview. Um, and he really was 
borderline hostile towards us, I would say. It did agree to be interviewed privately, um, refused really to answer any of our questions. Being a woman in this story, Clarissa tells me how she was not really expected to interact with the men, which made some of the conversations limited. However, there were some upsides to being a female in this story. I think what couldn't be done is by a man is, uh, for a man who, like me, has very obviously Western physical uh, appearance, I don't think it would have been possible for them to do that story. Because Western males are viewed as spies, they're viewed as combatants, they're viewed as hostile, and they attract an enormous amount of attention in these areas. Um, I know that Naj uh, told us that he would not have been comfortable doing this story with a man. I don't think the Taliban would have probably signed off on a man doing it. Because we were women under Naj's jurisdiction, if you like, um, there's a level of kind of, oh, those are your women and that's your problem and your business, and I don't need to get involved as a member of the Taliban with your business. I won't ask them questions in a sense because that would be rude because they're your women. So if you like, we were sort of Naj's property um, for the 36 hours that we were there, which meant that we had a degree of protection, um, not just in terms of our security, which would have been guaranteed, but in terms of people asking a lot of questions or interfering with us or interfering with our work. I also think when it comes to what a man couldn't have done, we slept in a separate area with the women and children. We spent the evening talking to them and uh, seeing family life, getting a sense of how civilians uh, behave and are treated and feel. And similarly in the clinic, we talked to the female midwife, we talked to women in the waiting room. This is a culture, and this is not limited to the Taliban, but in many parts of rural Afghanistan, a Western male will never see or speak to an Afghan woman. It just won't happen. She will be wearing a burqa, and she certainly will not answer your questions, and it would be inappropriate, frankly, to even ask. We were very fortunate in that sense that as women, we were able to have those conversations. We were able to sit in those rooms. We were able to see their faces uncovered. We were able to eat with them, uh, sleep alongside them, see how they interact, um, and hear their concerns, their lives, their stories. So that brought a level of depth to the reporting that I think would have been impossible to do as a man. On the other hand, of course, there are situations where as a woman you're somewhat limited, but because we had permission from the highest levels of the Taliban, we didn't feel those limitations as keenly. But it's those words that stand out to me, that she was property for 36 hours, which I want to focus on and understand exactly what goes through your head as a woman and a journalist in how you respond and report in that context. I wouldn't be okay with it if it was my life. In that situation, I'm okay with it because the reality is I visit a lot of different places and a lot of different cultures, and many of them are different to my own, and many of them I find very difficult as a woman. Um, at the same time, when you're visiting someone else's territory, you abide by their conduct, and I think that's not unreasonable. Um, in the same way, if I was invited to Buckingham Palace for tea, I'm not going to wear ripped jeans. If I'm invited by the Taliban to their territory, 
I'm going to wear the clothing that is expected for women to wear. It doesn't mean I agree with it. It doesn't mean I condone it. It doesn't mean I support it. But my job is as a journalist, I'm not an activist. I'm not there to solve the problem or change the situation. I'm there to just provide a window onto a world that we don't get to see. And uh, in order to do that, my presence can't be the story. I need to be able to, if not quite fade into the background, at least not become the story, at least not attract too much attention. Look, if someone had been aggressive with me, if someone had physically uh, harmed me, threatened me, that would not be okay. I would be uncomfortable with that. I would not be happy with that. But the types of things that we're talking about, I had anticipated in terms of being largely ignored. Um, it's not pleasant, but I had understood going into this story that the Taliban were never going to greet me with a big bear hug, and that's just the way it is. Now, we've spoken a lot about the disparities between cultures and the importance of the story not being the reporter. It's why Clarissa also emphasises that wearing the niqab is not that significant. But it's interesting that those two takeaways, if you will, both play into one of the standout moments in the piece. The camera crew actually catches footage of a young girl being hit by a motorcycle. Listen here as Clarissa describes how that one accidental piece of footage inadvertently sums up the tone and focus of the piece. What's been interesting is that I think the standout moment for many people who watch the piece is the scene where the little girl gets hit by the motorcycle. And this is one of those things that you could never plan it or predict it. And when it happens in the moment, you're not even really sure what to make of it because obviously as it happened, we were so shocked and horrified and I could hear this girl screaming and I have a one-year-old little boy and you know, you're almost hysterical wanting to, is this girl okay? What's happening? What can we do to help her? What does she need? And it was only really afterwards when we watched the material and watched the footage over that it became clear that in some ways this seemingly random incident that didn't directly relate to our story actually told a much deeper story and said so much about the place that we were, the people we were with, the experiences they've had, the sense of people being inured to violence, the lack of shock among the people about what happened, the lack of any apparent contrition from the Taliban fighter on the motorcycle. What struck me as well was in another situation, would everyone in the village have got together and run out and started shouting at the Taliban fighter and saying, hold on, what did you do? You are not going anywhere until we know this girl is okay. Why did they not do that? Why did that not happen? Was it because they were worried? for their security, they were afraid to challenge a Taliban fighter, or were they also, once they saw that the girl was conscious and seemingly not seriously, seriously injured, they were like, okay, this isn't a big deal. We see people getting blown up every other day, so this just doesn't hit that threshold for us. The reality on the ground from what we saw is that after 17 years of U.S. forces being there, after more than a trillion dollars spent um, flooding in billions on roads and infrastructure, life has not changed for many people in these rural areas. Their priority is peace and the hopes that with peace there will come an improvement to their daily lives. 
That's all we have time for this week, but I want to give a big thanks to Clarissa Ward from CNN for speaking to me, and of course, thank you to you at home or on the commute for tuning in. Last but not least, don't forget, if you would like to be featured on our podcast, you can get in touch with us at Journalism News on Twitter. Until next time.